From WPVM LP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Zapatia.
So do you have any uh, food aversions? Like, particularly <laughs> aversions that go back to, like, childhood trauma or, like, just even just a bad day when you were a kid that you can't eat anymore? Oh, my God, yeah. And I'm afraid to admit them because they're such popular foods. And so, yeah, it. the first one is lasagna. You can't eat lasagna. No, I got sick on it as a child. And I, and I want to love it because I love all other Italian food. So you'd think I'd have no problem now. Just one time you got sick on it? Yeah. And you still can't do it? No. It's, this is so weird to me because like, I know people that are like, oh, I can't do rum because of one time when I was in college. And I'm like, one time? Is that like how little you get sick that one time makes you like <laughs> traumatized for life? It's stomach memory. Yeah. What's the other one for you? The other one is boneless, skinless chicken breasts. Really? I ate so many of them growing up. So you have to have skin on? Um, I have to have a whole chicken. <laughs> right. Well, that's the better way to do it anyway. I think that's why I just grew more and more attracted to uh, to dark meat and to, you know, legs and thighs and, you know, digging out the oysters, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is uh, is... Because I will pretty much eat anything. I'm not, yeah. I don't have any aversions for the most part. But uh, from childhood, it is packaged peanuts. Not the ones what? with the shell on, yeah. but the ones without the shell. Um, like I'm the fine kind of- with like just popping peanuts out of shells and eating them. But just something about pouring those peanuts in your mouth out of the package is uh, goes back to like, because I grew up hypoglycemic. So I would have these like emotional meltdowns with mm. my family. And it was just blood sugar issues and they knew it. And they knew that if I just had a little bit of protein, everything would be fine. And so I, my, my childhood was like pitching a fit, throwing some kind of tantrum as a little tiny one. (laughs) And then them just shoving this package of peanuts in my hand and me having to like eat this dry, salty thing. And they'd they'd make me eat it all in one sitting. Oh no. And, uh, and so from then on, like I have this weird aversion to like, peanuts but i love boiled peanuts i don't mind like some peanuts in the shell at a baseball game but you hand me a package of those like convenience store yeah convenience store peanuts Mm -hmm. that is just like oh no we're not doing that we're not doing that so when london-based journalist adrian kennedy reached out to us with her story about her aversion to jello it struck a chord here's courtney DeGennaro robinson reading adrian kennedy's as god is my witness I was first diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 12, after three years of not growing an inch or gaining a pound, a time when I should have been spurting and approaching puberty. A chronic illness of the small or large intestine, Crohn's often disrupts the absorption of nutrients, which explained why I'd stopped growing. At the time, it was more of an inconvenience than anything else. I couldn't stay up as late as the other girls at sleepovers. I had to take medicine as often as I brushed my teeth. Well, more often, really. There was no popcorn for me at the movies or cheeseburgers at birthday parties. Both hurt my stomach. Everything I ate under my parents' watchful eye had to be nutrient-dense in an attempt to make up for lost time. At age 12, I grappled with this, attempting to accept that I was different at a time when, like every other 12-year-old girl, all I wanted was to be like everyone else. The difficulties were, thankfully, mostly emotional once we finally figured out what had stunted my growth and left me so tired. At 16, following a trip to the ER after pain that left me unable to even stand, I had emergency surgery, my first and only, knock on wood, a bowel resection surgery followed by a three-month stint at home, tutors instead of teachers, IVs instead of burgers and fries, a popsicle in the backyard instead of junior prom. My parents did their best to put a positive spin on our situation. After my surgery, I was wheeled into a private room of the newly built wing of the Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. It was as bright and cheerful as its name might indicate, or at least it tried to be. The newly refurbished wing was filled with colorful murals and toys wherever you cast your eyes, and I was the very first person to ever stay in my room. I can recall the stars and moons on my ceiling glowing each night, alongside all the symphony of beeping monitors and machines. The room came complete with a small icebox-sized fridge-slash-freezer, which my parents loaded with individual servings of jello cups and icy pops, two things other than clear broth I was allowed to consume for the next few months. My newly licensed teenage friends would drive their parents' cars over after school for visits. I pictured them in their cars, 
windows down, hair blowing in the warm breeze, tapping carelessly to their latest hand-picked mixtape. It was the 90s, after all. <laughs> Some would tentatively linger in the doorway, unsure of how to approach. But my best girlfriends would confidently, casually saunter in like it was no big deal, helping themselves to a clear, sweet snack of their choice before plopping themselves on my hospital bed, careful to avoid the sea of wires. Occasionally, we'd leave the hospital to walk outside in the small courtyard, slightly out of earshot from my parents so that they could feed me the latest gossip while I dragged my IV drips, nicknamed Oscar and Felix, behind me. We carried on the same types of visits from my parents' house once I was discharged after the surgery, upgrading to a full American-sized refrigerator and freezer and a portable IV backpack whose generator would audibly churn as it pumped milky liquids into my forearm. I remember sticking my head out of the window of my friend Margot's car like a dog off to the park as we drove away from the house for the first time. The backpack was still too loud to be in public without drawing unwanted attention, but the freedom of mobility it provided made the constant churning a small, tolerable concession. A small tumble dryer whirling away on my back. At a time in the late 90s when the blue raspberry flavor had just emerged and quickly became the flavor of choice, I was given open license to consume it. Blue Icy Pops quickly became my favorite, and we purchased them with gusto and in bulk. A thin thread of opportunity to participate in the world. My mother exhausted every possible jello flavor and broth combination, creating a sad combination we called Barnyard Soup, <laughs> a mixture of beef and chicken broth. It reeked of desperation, a feeble attempt to put a spin on a dark and unpredictable time, but she carried on in her attempts nonetheless. It's just what parents do. As my claustrophobia and restlessness grew, so did my sweet tooth. I developed a deep disgust for the colored, flavored gelatin. These feelings of having my wings clipped now associated themselves with its notoriously jiggly texture and the thick, sour scent from lipid spills during IV changes. It all became sickly and indistinguishable from each other. Eventually, the tides turned. I recovered from surgery with a scar from pubic bone to belly button as souvenir. No bikinis for me that summer, I surmised. I was allowed to start eating real food again. Leave the house. Return to school. I had a new, uncontrollable sweet tooth that took years to eventually wane, alongside the desire to eat absolutely everything. Equal parts rage against authority, rage against my body, and a means of making up for lost time and freedoms. It's been 24 years since my restrictive pre- and post-surgery diet of jelly and icy pops. I've had maybe one or two mouthfuls of each since. Their feel in my mouth something I don't ever want to repeat. <laughs> I'll contently sit and watch my two young daughters slurp down bowls of jello and whipped cream or a cool icy pop on a hot summer's day. Treats to them. Placeholders for me. Pinpoints to memories and feelings I could never conjure up by brain alone and don't wish to by mouth ever again. I'd never deny my children this pleasure. It's a relief to have overwritten some of these old feelings of pain with ones of joy. But in my head is the voice of Scarlett O'Hara. As God is my witness, I will never eat jello again. <laughs>
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving its farm-fresh foods with socially distanced tables, outdoor seating, takeout, and adherence to all COVID guidelines. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. So you've got a fun project going on. I do. Um, This cookbook project that I started, and I just simply call it the cookbook project or the cookbook campaign. Yeah. um, It began about six months ago and or actually now almost a year ago. Um, I came up with this idea to ask chefs in the Southeast about what was the one cookbook that inspired them to become a chef or what was the most influential cookbook of their lives. Hmm. And so I started this series of interviews and I traveled to Charleston and to Atlanta and around Asheville so far and just have started gathering stories and sitting with these chefs, you know, in their restaurants, outside of their restaurants and um, having them bring the cookbook that has inspired them with them to the interview if possible and just taking their portraits and, and listening to their stories of growing up or learning how to cook or like what was that singular moment when they knew that food was going to become the most important part of their lives. Yeah. And in this first installment, you've you've gone to one of my favorite places, which is Chenu in Charleston. Tell us about Chenu a little bit, what it's what it's like. Oh, Chenu is, is so wonderful. It's this 
little historic house that is tucked back from the main streets of Charleston. And it is a labor of love for the owners um, whom you will hear from in a moment. But it's just such an incredible menu. I think one of the first words that I associated with Shenu was audacity. Like they have the audacity to only offer two appetizers, two entrees, two desserts on their menu, and it changes every single day. It's an audacity of humility, too, though. Oh, yeah. 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 That's what I love about it, too, is that it's always a handwritten menu. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just I think that's amazing. It's one of the most remarkable places I've ever been. Yeah. yeah. So here's, uh, here's Catherine's look at Jill Mathias's Cooking with Instinct. Jill Mathias, owner and chef of Shea New in Charleston, South Carolina, has dramatically changed the way she cooks several times throughout her career as most chefs do. The reason? Inspiration from the cookbooks she has read at different phases in her life. It's like a band that you thought you hated, and then all of a sudden you're like, how come I never listened to them before, she explains. It's the same for cookbooks. You say to yourself, why have I never read this book before? Born in Wisconsin, but raised in Fargo, Moorhead, North Dakota, Matthias says she remembers receiving her most influential cookbook, Moosewood Cookbook, by Molly Katzen, when she was only 18 years old. It was really one of the first ones that I, I picked up, and I was like, oh, this is really fun, like, I like this, and, you know, I would have dinner parties with it, and like, oh, I'm just going to cook from this book. Yeah. <laughs> According to Matthias, it was the initial cookbook that pulled her into cooking and excited her about the craft. Moosewood is a vegetarian cookbook that has inspired many, including Matthias, to prepare simple, healthy, and seasonal food. She said one of her most vivid memories of cooking from the book was in the woods of Minneapolis with her friend and her friend's father. I also had a friend who, like in high school, in the beginning of college, whose um, dad uh, was a theology professor, and so he would go on these weekend sabbaticals to like uh, different colleges and stuff, and just kind of sit in the woods and write. And sometimes we would go and visit him, and we would just cook, and we always cooked from this this book. It's so strange. And then we would also do a lot of Middle Eastern cooking, and it was so weird. But that is really where I was like, oh, I really, I'm really enjoying this. And then it just turned into really loving to cook for people and having dinner parties and having people come over because it's, I mean, it just brings people together. It's like conversation and, you know, yeah. comedy ensues, <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's such an amazing way to always just brings people together, whether it's for sustenance or relaxation or celebration. Escaping the cold winters of Minneapolis, Matthias moved to Charleston nearly 20 years ago on a whim. I just knew that I wanted to be here, Matthias says. It all happened quickly. She attended culinary school at Johnson & Wales, but after graduating, she didn't sit still for long. Matthias moved to an island in Puerto Rico for a while, resided in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, and spent her winters in Rome and traveling to other faraway places. But I've always come back to Charleston, she says. The city she couldn't permanently abandon is where she decided to create Shea New about five years ago with the help of her partners, the owners of Bin 152, a gorgeous wine bar on Lower King Street in Charleston. And, and so they talked to me about it, asked me if I wanted to be partners, and basically, um, you know, present me with the whole idea of what Shea New would be the thoughts of what it would be and it was like my dream restaurant so it just so yeah it just it wasn't like oh this is going to be our location it was you know it's sort of happened organically built in a house from 1835 she knew was definitely a labor of love for matthias and her husband the space was dilapidated and needed a complete renovation which matthias says took about a year to completely finish Chenu, which focuses on southern France, northern Spanish, and northern Italian cuisine, offers a daily rotating menu of local ingredients, the same for both lunch and dinner, which only consists of two appetizers, two entrees, and two desserts. There's there's no bells or whistles to this yeah. food, but at the end of the day, that to me, 
was really difficult to do. Oh, yeah. Um, but it also, like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be crazy, and it shouldn't have to be hard, and it, and we, where we live in Charleston, there is such a huge, amazing abundance of, like, seafood and farmland um, that it's such an amazing opportunity to be able to let those ingredients kind of shine and do what they do. I mean, the restaurant takes the simplicity Matthias learned from Moosewood and combines it with another cookbook she says inspired her along the way, French Feast, 299 Traditional Recipes for Family Meals and Gatherings by Stéphane Renaud. As a cookbook that has influenced the way she currently approaches cuisine, French Feast evokes the considerable pleasures of the French table and captures the essence of traditional French cooking that you can always find at Chez Nou in a simple, straightforward manner. When asked which cookbook she is currently reading, Matthias reflects on La Mère Brésia, The Mother of Modern French Cooking by Eugénie Brésia. She was the first chef to have three Michelin stars and then went on to get have six Michelin stars. Um, and obviously, for sure, the first woman to do that, too. So yeah. um, it's, it's a pretty, again, it's... It's very, it's a very interesting cookbook. In the beginning, it's part of it is um, autobiographical, and then it goes into the recipes. But you also have to maybe have a little knowledge of <laughs> what you're doing because she never wrote anything down. So whoever, because she died while she, this book was being written. Um, so when they finished the book, I think they were just went by some of her notes that weren't very exact which is great because that's how I cook it's very instinctual the way that I cook so so far those instincts haven't led patrons or Matthias astray
lot of us are eating in a lot more these days. Between the pandemic, more of us working from home than ever, and just not being able to go out to eat whenever we want, we're spending a lot more time in our kitchens and around our dining room tables. When journalist and New York City expat Carolyn Kikarella wound up spending a lot more time in her kitchen at her new home in Italy, she started to see value in what she had begun to see as hardship. My family and I gather at the table to discuss our grocery list. Food is more important than ever because when we shop, we're shopping to hold us at least two weeks. We've been making a point to make our food last as long as possible, even skipping lunch on most days. What's getting me through the COVID-19 outbreak is food. We make our lists out of fresh vegetables and protein and have been sure to bulk up on pantry staples like beans, rice, pasta, lentils, tomato sauce, whole grain bread, etc. Grocery shopping has become one of our outing, so we make the most of it, knowing that as doing so, we're keeping our family fed and satisfied. As we're preparing our grocery list, we go around the table, saying if there's something specific anyone has been craving. My husband, Pulisi Born, always requests orecchette with sugo and fried polpette meatballs. My mother prefers classic comfort food like roasted chicken, mashed potatoes, and spinach. And my 18-month-old daughter likes what mommy makes banana bread. Myself, I am never one to turn down a bowl of mushroom tortellini in a creamy tomato sauce. There is no office meeting to get to, no dropping the kids off at school, and no family night at your favorite pizzeria. The one thing that has remained the same is food. My family and I have been taking turns cooking. Some nights, my mom cooks, and some nights, my husband, but most of the time, I cook. Why? Because I want to. I want to know that I'm doing whatever is in my control to keep my family happy. We're in a helpless situation where we have no control. I only have control over what my family eats. Food during times like these has kept us full. It has kept us satisfied in times when not much can satisfy us. There is so much comfort and familiarity. When I cook a meal for my family, it brings them comfort. Eating a bowl of steaming hot pasta with fresh, sweet tomato sauce is something we always used to do on family gatherings on Sunday. By doing this, we haven't lost those moments. Food and cooking have also helped ease my anxiety and keep me balanced. Though I work at home as freelance writer and often deal with tight deadlines and Zoom call interviews, when I'm in the kitchen, that's my time. I am concentrated at my work at hand, and in that moment, making a meal for my family is my work. At 7 p.m., my husband and I have finished our work. We set the table, turn on some music, and have a roaring fire going. We take our seats with our daughter, happily in her high chair. Dinner is served. No more talk of the day's work or frightening times. No talk of the coronavirus at all. All that matters in these moments is family and the meal in front of us. The meal that was lovingly prepared in our small Italian kitchen. The meal that was requested by my husband after a long day's work. The meal that we looked forward to all day. That is what matters most. That was Cindy Kunst reading Caroline Kikarella's one meal at a time. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. Listen that so and 
everything I thought of everything Standing on the corner Just staring at the sky Oh man, I saw a lot of things I saw a lot of things And I should be happy We think of the Midwest, of fields of corn rising up, or long rows of wheat stretching across the plains. But we don't often think about rice, especially rice grown along the Mississippi Delta. That might be because rice isn't indigenous here. It was brought over as a measure of last resort woven in the hair of enslaved West Africans. But eventually, rice became a staple of American diets, and while it has given way to easier cash crops, it is still grown on over 3.1 million acres in six states. John recently wrote about a Mississippi rice grower for At Home in the Upstate magazine. Here's his conversation with Delta Blues rice farmer, owner, and miller, David Arendt Jr. Yeah, well, my, um, I guess you could say my great-grandfather, he, uh, he started the farm back in the 1920s, and... Um, my grandfather and my grandmother, they, they kind of built it for what it is, I guess you could say. And um, on our farm, we grow corn, soybeans, and rice. And we used to have cotton, used to have cattle, and used to have catfish. So we got, we got out of some of uh, – we've gotten out of, we've gotten out of some crops in the past, but, but corn, soybeans, and rice. And, you know, my father and my uncle, um, when they graduated from college, they came straight back to the farm. And they, they kind of ran, they have been running the operation ever since. But uh, me personally, my wife and I, we, we moved to um, Jackson, Mississippi after, after graduating college. And I worked as a civil engineer there, my wife called. And we, uh, we kind of got tired of, of living in Jackson, of, of doing that life. We really um, missed being on the farm. So in 2012, uh, I moved my family back to, to the Mississippi Delta and we started farming. Hmm. Wow. That had to be a bit of a transition, huh? <laughs> yeah, my, my wife is from the, uh, the Gulf Coast, and so getting her all the way to the Mississippi Delta, five hours away from home, that was a big, that was a big change for her, but um, yeah. it's been a very welcome and good change. Yeah. How did you guys land on farming rice? What was the, what was the decision for that? Because I was looking, and I mean, rice is farmed in the U.S., but it's not a dominant crop by any means. And That's what, correct. Yeah, yeah, what was the draw to that? Well, I would say we started farming rice back in the 70s when when my dad graduated college, he came back and his job was to to figure out how to grow rice. And uh, other people in the area were starting to grow rice. It was kind of a new crop. And, you know, we have heavy clay soils. And that's that's kind of the key is you want to have heavier soils just because those soils hold water better. Yeah. And um, ever since then, we've been growing rice on our farm. And the... um, and I guess in 2013, you know, I came back to the farm in 12, 2013, 14, you know, when my wife and I were in Jackson, we kind of, we enjoy going to local local farmer's market, buying produce straight off the truck and that kind of thing. And so when we got to the Delta, 
we didn't have that option. You know, we don't really have many farmers markets in our area. Yeah. And so that's kind of something we wanted to do differently. We wanted to put take a crop straight from the farm to the table. And that's how we got into this rice milling business. I mean, we had always milled rice, but on a very, very small scale, just giving it away to friends and family on holidays. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in 2013, 14, we just jumped right in and decided to um, – start selling rice off the farm and you know we still sell rice uh the way we do way we have done for 40 years as far as the big grain elevators and they ship it all over the country and the world hmm. uh we we have a small portion of our operation that goes to uh the delta blues rice our rice our personal private rice oh wow huh what what i wonder if you could talk a bit too about what the process of of growing and milling rice is like yeah well you know it really starts the the season, the, the fall before, you know, but you want your ground to be prepared. You know, you want your ground to be level and um, free of any roots that hold water and that kind of thing. And so that, and that way, when spring rolls around, once it starts, stops raining so much, it's going to dry out faster because you want to be able to get your crop planted um, in April, May, at the latest May. And, you know, you grow it um, up until August. And, you know, you want the rice to have, you want the grain to be at least, some people, some people keep water on their rice, you know, throughout the growing season. Uh, some of our fields, we do that. And some other fields, we just keep them moist throughout the growing season, depending on the slow of the ground and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And the water helps with weed control and, and, and disease and that kind of thing. So you know, around August, we uh, will pretty soon we will start draining our rice fields and um, getting them ready for harvest. And we'll harvest harvest August, September, October, and then um, that's pretty much the growing season. You know, that's that's it takes you know planted August, harvest in August, September, and and that's it as far as growing the crop. Yeah. Uh, then all the other time you spend, you spend time you know growing your other crops or getting stuff ready for the next year. Yeah. No. And, and I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk too about the, it must be hard to try to price when you're competing against an international market and especially a product that has such a, a strangely low markup because <laughs> it's, you know, it's just has to be costly to produce by comparison to what you're, you're actually moving. Yeah. I mean, you know, we kind of decided that, you know, we didn't want to. First of all, we didn't want to. See it, it, we didn't want to spend the money to compete with the big rice mills that mill tens of thousands of pounds of, of rice a day and ship it all over the country and the world. Yeah, That's, that was not a business model that we wanted to spend the money to to get to. That's not that was not where we wanted to be. And so, with that in mind, we said, you know, and and I don't know if I mentioned it, but my father and uncle we're all partners in this rice mill and the farm together. So we all work together on this. And, you know, we just decided we didn't want to work. If we're going to do this, we want to make it at least try to make it a little bit worth our time. Yeah. And so that's, that's, you know, we, we're not going to compete. We're not going to even try to compete with the rice that, that's 99 cents for a pound on the store shelf in a plastic bag. Yeah. You know, that, that's not us. And we want something that's, speaks to a higher quality and a better looking product on the shelf, something that will look good in a gift store. And you know, something that's like somebody, you know, says it looks good as a unique looking bag. It's just different. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not mass produced. So that's, that's kind of what we wanted to go for. Our, our whole pro- operation is not, um, I guess you could say it's no, we're not really going for complete efficiency because I believe some of that efficiency you lose in, in the, like the processing of the rice, the milling of the rice. You lose some of the flavoring, and so hmm. process. So that's that's kind of that's kind of where we are. We just you know, a saying I've kind of adopted, but you know, is like good rice ain't cheap, and cheap rice ain't good. And so you know, it's kind of, and that's not entirely true, obviously. It's marketing, but um, it's just uh, the idea that um. You know, I, it's a single family growing the rice, and I handle the, the my father and I, myself and uncle. We grow the rice, and I mill it and package it up and send it out. It's just yeah, something different and unique. 
Yeah, I wonder if you could speak too about the um, the difference in the types of rice, because I think a lot of people think that brown rice is a different species than white rice, but it's not. It's just the milling process. That's, that's correct, yes. The, um, when, uh, if you look at a rice field, like a, like a, a mature rice field, the, the, the grain itself is a yellow, yellow husk on it. And that's kind of like your chaff. And so when the, the milling process, the first step, uh, removes that husk. And so when you remove the husk, you have brown rice. That's your brown rice right there. And that's all there is to it. Yeah. And if you want right, white rice, all you have to do is just remove that brand through, a, I guess, an abrasive action, like through almost like sandpaper, but it's a big sanding stones, big grinding stones. Hmm. And um, that, that takes off that rice brand. Yeah. And then, and you guys are also making grits with both brown and, and white rice, right? That's correct. Yeah, we, um, you know, grits, I, I tell people all the time, you know, rice grits are just broken grains of rice. There's nothing more, nothing less. It's just broken grains of rice. It's right. not corn. You know, people some people tell me, oh, I don't like grits. I was like, well, and I was like, do you like rice? He's like, yeah, we love rice. And I'll say, you'll love rice grits. And rice grits, they just cook up creamier than your regular rice, your regular long grain rice. Some people use them for uh, risotto because they cook up faster. Oh, yeah. Um, that actually real sounds great. They're, they're really good. Um, we're about to launch a new product. You know, we have jasmine rice, which is an aromatic rice. Right. Um, we've had that for several years now, but we're going to launch uh, a jasmine, jasmine rice grit. We've had that requested for several, you know, for a while now. And so I just decided we ought to go ahead and do it. <laughs> Would there be a substantial difference between a, a, a regular... Long grain white rice grit and a and a jasmine rice grit. It's going to be your uh, your, your aromatic uh, flavoring is huh. what it is. You know, that aromatic, you know, just that jasmine. You received a sample, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've definitely tried the jasmine rice and it is pretty pretty pungent. Yeah. Yeah, but um, it's so so you know with the rice grit, the jasmine rice grit, you will have that flavor and that taste. Just something, just something a little bit different. I mean, it's not. Not reinventing the wheel or anything, but something a little bit different, a little bit different product. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, are you guys looking into going into any kind of like heirloom rice styles, like the the Carolina Golds or anything like that in the future? You know, we we've thought about that kind of stuff, um, and you know, we've tried different varieties, different varieties of rice, and the variety we've picked. We, or the variety we, we use, we really like it a lot. I mean, we, we I tried some different varieties this year, just trying to, try to see if I can improve on the flavor and improve on the cooking characteristics. And so far, I really haven't found anything that I like more than the variety that we're growing. Yeah. Um, so probably not. Let Carolina Gold stay over, stay in the Carolinas, and 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 that could that, that's that's fine. I mean, it's a good, it's a great product. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with it at all. Is there a big history of rice growing in the Delta area? I would say it started in the 70s. Um, the, back huh. then, the government would allow certain farmers to grow a certain amount of rice because they didn't want to oversaturate, oversaturate the market, I believe. Hmm. And so that's kind of how it got started. And then maybe in the 80s or 90s, they just they, they lifted that allotment uh, order and anybody could grow rice if they wanted to. But, you know, it kind of, you, you really want to have the, the right soil type. You want to have a lot of available water. Um, and so that, that's kind of the, um, the requirements. Yeah. Soil and water. Interesting. Good soil and water. Huh. I can get a, a rice at a grocery store with the local generic label on it for like $1.99 a pound. Right. But what's, what's the difference in that and what I'm getting with your product? Right. Well, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. A couple things. As a farmer, when I take my rice to the big rice mills over on the Mississippi River or wherever, they they mill all they mix all those different varieties together. They they have no other way that they can keep it separate. Yeah. Whereas what we do, we have a single variety or identity preserved, and so we keep a consistent flavor and cooking characteristics through our product versus. Um, when you co-mingle varieties from at the big rice mills, you know, you, you just, you do have that co-mingling effect. And so sometimes one batch from one batch to another might be, might taste a little bit different or might be 
bland or bold or whatever on flavor. And so that that's certainly one of the big differences. I didn't I didn't realize that was a thing. I didn't realize that there was a lot of blending of varieties at these mills. Well, when, at the big mills, the big the big operations, there certainly can be. Yeah. Um, when every when all the farmers bring um, their rice in to sell, they they have to put it all in one big bin, and that, that's just how it is. You know, there's no other way about it, no other way around. Now, some some operations they do have a single variety, uh, but a lot of them do not. Um, yeah. And that's just you know that when they when they can't have a bin for all 20 different varieties just because of the space requirements and you know one farmer a farmer might not, only one farmer might grow one for one that particular variety that year and so you know you have to put them all together and mix them up huh that's fascinating. And also yeah and also you know i, I strive to provide a good customer service um i answer all the emails phone calls whatever and so you know at five o'clock in the morning if you have a rice cooking question i mean i'm going to respond to you <laughs> You know, and I actually have had that happen before. Somebody <laughs> sent me an email and just, I had to respond. I needed to respond to them. That's, that's what you Small family operation. I bet, I mean, I bet you do get some, some interesting cooking questions because I feel like rice is one of those things that people really struggle to get right. Yeah. You know, the white rice people, we have pretty good instructions on the back of our bag, I believe. Yeah. But the brown rice has thrown some people for a loop. You know, you have altitude, you have uh, burner heat or, or burner strength. You have different cooking, you have different pots, pans that I all cook a little bit different. You have instant pots. You have all right. this stuff that's that makes it different, uh, makes it harder or easier to cook. And so, you know, like brown rice, I, I do get the most questions about brown rice. And um, I would say, you know, if you look at our website, deltabluesrice.com, on our recipes, we have a, it's a recipe called oven-baked brown rice, and it has become our go-to favorite, just to telling people to try this oven-baked brown rice, because it cooks flawlessly every time. The rice is going to come out, um, you know, soft, and it's going to be really good. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to worry about cooking it too long or too short on the stovetop, and it, it's tur- it turns out really well. I think that's one of those secrets to good rice, too. Like, anybody that works in a restaurant knows that, like, most restaurant rice is cooked in an oven, not right. on a stove. You know, right. it's just that's right. more consistent, better heat throughout, and it just allows it to steam easier, you know? That's right. That was John talking with Delta Blues rice owner David Arendt Jr. You can find more about Delta Blues Rice by going to their website, deltabluesrice.com, and you can read John's story at athomeupstate.com. i 
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2020. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Zapatia, Laura Veers, Red Ribbon, Jane Weaver, JFDR, Bonnie Doon, Andy Bell, Heinbach, Oliver Patrice Weeder, and Thomas Bartlett. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPBM. Before we go, a quick correction and apology. We are so sorry, but we mispronounced Caroline Kirakella's name. It is Kirakella, not Kikarella. Sorry about that. We do recommend looking her up. She's a fantastic writer with work in New York Times and Washington Post and a bunch of other really reputable publications. And again, that name is Caroline Kirakella. So, yeah, our apologies. That was entirely my fault. Thanks for listening. See you soon.